Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning. It's good to see you here today. Um, we are in the book of Hebrews still today. Um, anybody read ahead? You know, you know where we're at. Uh, I had a couple texts of people that your MCs were going to go through these, and I had a couple questions ahead of time, so I know a couple of you do know. Uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10, and then add on verse 23 uh, through 25 in our time together today. Um, the word says this, For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man who was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office of a commandment in the law and take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, In the one case, tithes are received by a mortal man, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 23. There's some great stuff here. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you draw near to us. We pray that we see um, Jesus through this text and more importantly, that you teach us what it means to draw near and the beauty of a savior who intercedes for us. Uh, Lord, may may you captivate our hearts. May we be hungry and thirsty and see that there is a path to you made for us and available to us. Father, make us those who draw near and draw near to us as we do so. We pray that in your name. Amen. So uh, Allie and I from time to time get caught up in a good crime drama show in that glorious, amazing, sacred time known as the time after kids go to bed. Uh, we'll sit back and maybe turn down the lights, snuggle up on the couch, and, and pull up a whodunit show. Uh, and if you're like us, if you enjoy a good crime drama, you probably know that one of the hallmarks that you're accustomed to in modern uh, type crime dramas is the phenomenon known as the evidence board. You know, there's the scene uh, where all of a sudden this kind of beautiful minds board pops up with stuff kind of everywhere. There's a myriad of pictures and notes and, and documents all over this board, and they serve as clues, and they'll be all spread out, and they're going to operate as kind of a, a body of evidence in front of the viewer. And the detective will kind of look at this board with their team from a distance, taking careful consideration, kind of every piece of evidence in front of them 
them, and out of the accumulation of all of the evidences, they're going to try and make some sort of, uh, of conclusion or understanding from all of that. That's the moment in the show where the actor, normally they'll have like their arms crossed and they'll be looking in and maybe they'll do the brow thing that lets you know like they're focusing really hard and then they'll have the like, aha, I got, I got it, like look sort of thing. Uh, and, and the truth will just kind of jump out of them after seeing all of the evidence. Apparently, this evidence board has a name. It's called a Wigmore chart. And again, the basics are the sum of all evidence is placed in front of you so that you can try and make a concise conclusion from the sum of all the evidence. Why do we bring that up? Hebrews 7, as confusing as it seems in a first, second, third, and maybe 20th reading, it serves as a type of evidence board or Wigmore chart before us. What it does is it lays out a ton of clues in front of us or facts about this guy, this person that we've seen mentioned now uh, at least two or three times in the book of Hebrews, a man named Melchizedek. And all of those clues and pieces of information that we hear or we see that we have presented to us, they're going to serve to lead us to one concise conclusion that Jesus is better better than the customary Levite priest that Israel was used to. This is a very specific focus. Now, this may sound odd. How do all of these random seeming facts about a guy uh, lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is better? That kind of feels like a large hop, skip, and a jump, but we need to see that Melchizedek serves as what is called a type of Christ. In the Old Testament, often we will find a, a person or an event that serves to prefigure or shadow for us the coming of the real Christ later on. They're called types of Christ. They're illusions. They're, they're, they're hints. They're helpful pictures to teach us about the Jesus who would later come and what he would be like and what he would do and what he would represent to the people and what he would accomplish. So if we're kind of looking at a cursory look over the Old Testament, Moses serves as a type of Christ. As Moses led people out of uh, captivity under the bondage of slavery in Egypt, it's just a foreshadow that Jesus will lead us out of captivity to the bondage of our slavery. The Passover, that event, was a type of Christ as it teaches that you put the, the blood of an innocent or young lamb over the doorpost of your home and all who are covered by that blood, death will pass them by. That's a type of Christ because it's pointing out how the blood of Jesus applied in belief to your heart will pass you by as far as the, the consequences and eternal death for your sin. Jonah was a type of Christ. He spent three days in the belly of the whale pointing towards how Jesus would spend three days in the grave. But then beheld no more. All over the Old Testament, you're gonna find numerous pictures and examples of types of Christ. Now, these aren't actual Christs. They aren't equal with Christ. They aren't equivalent to Christ. They're simply meant to be helpful previews going, hey, let me, let me show you just a little hint of what is going to be coming for you. And these types of Christ that we see over the Old Testament scripture, they, they kind of give us an example of God's kindness and his sovereignty. His kindness is shown in these types because it helps us just understand Jesus. We're clueless sometimes. He's going, hey, let me weave some things in there to kind of help you get the gist of what I am doing. Let me help you and prepare you so that you can grasp the fullness of what I will send my son to do as a kindness to help us. And there are examples of his sovereignty as well because it's only a sovereign God who can weave into the course of human history signposts that point to Jesus' his son. 
It's only him that can do that. All of these are meant to build expectation, build understanding, build hope, and Melchizedek serves as just another one of these types of Christ. Now, think, think about this for a second in the sovereignty realm because we miss the examples every once in a while. You and I make plans sometimes, right? And the, the reality is we get really kind of busted up and frustrated because often plans that we make just to get us through a single week, we'll have a plan of how the week is going to go and we can't even interweave our plan to, to, to show up and work out correctly. And yet God weaves into human history over and over and over these pictures of Jesus to help us out. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is good and he is kind. Now again, why is this text right here? I've asked that a ton in the book of Hebrews so that we don't get lost. Well, it's because the author is tapping into the original audience's present struggle at the time. Their biggest struggle at the time was to be able to believe that Jesus would be and could be their high priest. This is where our current cultural moment has a little bit of a difficulty connecting with theirs. We're used to certain things in our day and age, right? We're used to uh, things like high school and colleges, and we're used to voting and televisions and cars and cell phones and audiobooks and social media and x-rays, Right? And all of those things would have been completely foreign to the original audience. They would not be able to to connect to us on those things. And conversely, there are things that they were used to that are foreign to us because we don't operate in the same way as they did. For most Jewish citizens back then, central and all-consuming theme to their life would be uh, the idea of the Aaronic priesthood or the priests that come from the line of Aaron. Everyone would have known it. There would have been deep understanding. It would have been a massive theme that their life was kind of orchestrated around these priests that come from the tribe of Levi. Through this priesthood came everything they knew about a right relationship with God. Everything that they knew about forgiveness and right standing with God came from these priests. We often skip the book of Leviticus. We're like, hey, I'm going to do a Bible reading plan. You start in January, you're pumped, you get to Leviticus, and you either quit or you're like, meh, okay, I kind of read it, and you go to the next book, Numbers, meh, and you kind of go. For them, Leviticus isn't just the thing they skim past. It is what their hope and peace came through to have favor with God. I'm paying attention to these things because this is how I get in right standing with God. The original covenant priests were all they knew concerning right standing with God. So they were really, really important to them. But now all of a sudden for this original audience, this radical, probably crazy seeming message of Christianity came, which declares that the Aaronic priesthood has been set aside. It's been superseded. Christianity declares that the old covenant priesthood was actually just a foreshadowing or a preview of Jesus. It was a type of Christ in its own regard. It was always meant to point to something greater. Christianity declares that the Levitical priesthood was temporary and not needed anymore, but now that the Messiah has come, the old priesthood has been replaced with a superior priest, namely that in Jesus of Nazareth. Can we just agree if you heard about this all of your life, it was central to your life, your granddaddy and great-granddaddy and all of these lines all followed this one thing and then all of a sudden this new thing came to you and said, hey, we don't need that anymore. That's a heavy pill to swallow. We have the gift of time. 
We have the gift of a lot of great teachers and theologians that have explained things for us. But for them, they received this message within a hundred years of it being rolled out in live action for them. It was a whole lot harder. It's a tough pillow, a pill to swallow that this Jesus from no name Nazareth, remember the text, what good can come from Nazareth? that that Jesus was going to replace the line of priests from Aaron that their entire family had put all of their hope in for years. That this Jesus, a man who was crucified in his 30s by Rome, was going to be their savior. That he was going to stand in between God and them and that they would be safe there. They had heard of Jesus' miracles. They had heard of his gospel. They had witnessed his power. They had access to, to firsthand accounts of people who saw him alive after the resurrection. And still the nagging question had to be, are we really, really going to believe that this guy is going to, he's going to stand between God and us? Do we, do we really want to trust that? Do we want to put the full weight of our hope into him when generations had leaned into something else to deal with their sin and their guilt. It would have been heavy and it would have been hard. To which the author says, okay, I understand this is a hard thing for you to swallow, but I want you to understand that this idea of Jesus is not a new idea. It's not a new religion. It's been woven into the old scriptures all along. It's been pointing to him. It's not new. It's not out of the blue. It's not crazy. It has a foundation. Jesus is the forerunner of Melchizedek. A line that the author says is superior to the line of Aaron. Then the author begins to drop clues back to the evidence board. He's going to drop clues and crumbs over and over and over to try and teach us that Jesus is superior, a superior high priest. Verse 1 through 3, look at those one more time with me. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the most high God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of a part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of day nor end of day, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Again, he's trying to show the superiority of Christ. The first crumb that we saw was actually in chapter six last week when he says that Jesus is a high priest from the order of Melchizedek. He's starting the connection right there. Jesus is from this line. He's from this. It's different. It's different than the Levitical priests. He is greater. And then he begins to start the crumbs in chapter seven. And we learn that Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem and a high priest. And as the king of Salem and high priest, he met Abraham. Uh, and this is pulled straight from Genesis 14. If you want to read it later, it's right there. You can. But after a great battle, uh, Abraham is coming home and he meets Melchizedek out in the field. And Melchizedek brings bread and wine as the high priest. And, and, and they have this moment of blessing out in the field. And Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. And um, in response to to that, Abraham gave Melchizedek one-tenth, a tithe of the spoils that he received from uh, the victory. Again, there's quite a few clues in here. What are they? Well, the first clue is rule. Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem is what would later become Jerusalem. I'm just going to ask you for a second. We're going to get some details, like six in a row, and you're going to be tempted to zone out. Hang with me for a little bit. In this line of rule... He's saying he's a better line, but he's showing, well, 
why is Melchizedek's line a better line? Well, Melchizedek wasn't just a priest. He was a king too. He's both of these things. No old covenant, original covenant priest ever could claim to be this. No other biblical figure could claim to be a high priest and a king until Jesus again. Priests normally deal with holiness and atonement and being intermediaries. They had no reign of their own. They had no reign to establish. They had no power of their own, no control of their own, no subjects of their own. Nothing like that, but Melchizedek does, and Jesus comes from his line. He is not just a priest. He's a priest and a king with a rule and with power. He's better. The name Melchizedek means something as well. Melech comes from the word king. Sedek comes from the word righteousness. Thus, his name means king of righteousness. It's another foreshadowing of Christ. Interestingly enough, Salem comes from the word shalom, which means peace. Melchizedek was the king of peace. This builds anticipation for what was the name for Jesus, the prince of peace the king of righteousness. All of a sudden, you start going, oh, 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 you connected that. Oh, and you connected this. And and then there's a a third clue of lineage, one of the clearest forms of typing. In in these verses, in verse 3, Melchizedek is without father or mother, it says. He lacks genealogy. And it's not portraying him as some biological anomaly. They're just kind of not listed in the text. He had a mother, he had a father, he had a a genealogy, he was born and he died, but they were uh, omitted from scriptures on purpose. It's silent about its parents and his genealogy to point us towards Jesus. Just as Jesus didn't have regular parents, either did Melchizedek. Yes, his mother was Mary, but remember what the text says, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. His parents weren't the same as what we would think of. Uh, And you may think, well, that's just kind of a weird quirk that it says that he has no genealogy. If you look through scriptures, they were meticulous about making sure any Old Testament priest had a pedigree that could be verified. Think about when somebody enters into the political world, all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're digging into their dirt. They're trying to figure out where their family comes from to make sure everything's okay. It would have been unheard of again. There's no genealogy for this man listed. When the scripture says he has no beginning of days or end of days, again, it doesn't mean that he wasn't born and that he never died. Some people uh, have tried to uh, say that Melchizedek was actually uh, Michael, the archangel, and different things like that. I don't think the Bible is, is saying that. These things just weren't recorded, making some peculiar similarities to Jesus. Jesus was born of Mary, but we also see through the text he is the truth that was with the Father in creation. And since he was resurrected, he doesn't have an end of days. If he was with Jesus, or if he was with the Father upon creation, he doesn't have a beginning of days. And if he was resurrected, he doesn't have an end of days either. They're connecting over and over and over again. This Jesus is not like the others. He has a priesthood that is forever and it will never pass by. Melchizedek's death was not listed. If someone dies, you have to pass it to another person. If his death isn't listed, they're going, hey, his priesthood never stopped. Jesus is the next in the same order and his priesthood will never stop either. Again and again and again. He's showing this priesthood is better than the priesthood that you've attached all hope to. Understand the whole Bible pointed towards us and it's better. 
Then in verse 4 through 10, the author turns to demonstrate other ways that Jesus' priesthood is superior, superior to the priesthood of Abraham. Again, our hearts will have a hard time uh, connecting to this because we're not uh, stuck to uh, the kind of patriarch in the way that they were in the Old Testament. What he does is he establishes that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham to then say the priest from Melchizedek would be superior to the priest from Abraham. He does it in three, word, in three ways. First, he says Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, not the other way around. Old Testament priests paid tithes to the line of Aaron from Levi, right? So if they ministered as priests, you paid one-tenth tithe to them for do, to do the work of the Lord. But the text says in this field, you would think that Melchizedek would give money to Abraham because ties normally went to their family. He goes, no, 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 no. Abraham gave his money to Melchizedek, saying that he was submitting to him and his priesthood. It was a better priesthood. Melchizedek blessed Abraham in the field, not the other way around. The text says the inferior Abraham was blessed by the superior Melchizedek. Again, the line is greater. The cherry on top, Melchizedek's priesthood hasn't been lost. Much like the point when it said uh, before that there is no beginning of days or end of days, the author is reminding us that there is no greater priesthood. A priest that requires no successor, no next in line, will always be superior to one of a mortal man who will die and have to be replaced. This is a strong, strong point towards Melchizedek's line and ultimately Christ's superiority as the priest that you would want to follow. So if we step back, we see several clues on the, on the evidence board, on the Wigmore chart that are meant to be uh, powerful for us towards Christ being superior uh, to be the go-between or the in-between between you and God. But here's my sneaking, my sneaking suspicion. If I've lost you, come back now. Those probably don't mean a whole lot to you. Like I, I would bet that you'd hear those and go, oh, cool, like that's neat. I never knew that about the Old Testament before. But you probably don't go like, oh my gosh, that's powerful to my heart. They may be cool facts or crumbs, but they probably don't mean a whole lot to you. Then he lists something next in the next part that will mean a lot to you though. Something beautiful, something that is truly different. One that we can latch a hold of, even in our modern context, is different than theirs. It said in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to imagine with me this situation. You're a first century Jewish man or woman. Right? You're back in the time of the old covenant priesthood. You would put your faith in believing that a specific man who was the high priest was going to be successful in bringing a sacrifice to God to atone for your sins. You believed that this guy was going to be able to do it. You were counting on this specific priest to fulfill the duty as priest for you. You were depending on this specific priest to make a sacrifice for you. You're depending on, on them to make themselves clean in the proper way so that they could approach God. You were, you were depending on them to be your representative in front of God for you, in your mind. You would hear this priest assure you, I've got this. I know what to do. I've got the Old Testament scriptures. I understand what to do. I've got you covered. Don't worry. Great. I'll, I'll work it out. I'll make the sacrifice. I know exactly what I need to do. I've got it. This is an incredibly high amount of faith 
that we be placed in this priest for that man to deal with the greatest problem that anyone will ever have. That's a ton of faith. This man will deal with my sin as the high priest. He will deal with the wrath of God that is due to me because of my sin, for the sin that I have committed. I believe that he's going to take care of it. Then imagine with all of that faith that you have placed in that man that he dies. All of these years believing he's going to take care of it. Maybe it's of old age. Maybe he gets gored by the bull that he was going to sacrifice. I don't know. It's irrelevant on how he dies, but imagine he dies. What are you going to do about your sin? What is your anxiety level at that moment? That person that you are counting on is gone. You can't go yourself to God. Remember, you're not of the line. You're not holy. You can't go into the inner holies of holies. People die for that. Who's going to take your sacrifice? Anxiety builds. Well, I can't go in there. Who's going to make it? They haven't. What do I do? Anxiety builds even more. The person that you trusted, the person that had earned your trust over the years can do nothing for you. You have to start over. A new high priest has to be put in place to go in for you, and you have to build trust that this person will be able to do and fulfill everything that they say that they'll be able to. The author says, this isn't the, key, the case with the Prince of Peace or the King of Righteousness. You'll never have to do this with him. This isn't the case with the one who has no beginning of days or end of days. This Messiah, Christ Jesus, from the order of Melchizedek, he never dies. He never gets removed. He'll never get ousted from office. He made the perfect sacrifice already on your behalf. The work is finished. Other priests had to make sacrifices over and over and over again. They had to come and give more blood and more blood and more blood and make sure that more animals' blood is spilled for sin. But Jesus, he has already, he has already shed his blood. So he does something new. He doesn't make sacrifices for you anymore because he doesn't need to. It's done. He makes intercession for you. This is different. Wrap your mind around what the author just explained. Other priests had to make more sacrifice. They had to, their livelihood, their life was dictated by making sacrifice. They live to make sacrifices for you. And the text goes, this Jesus doesn't need to do that. So he goes and he prays for you. This Jesus intercedes for you. He's the perfect sacrifice. So now he goes to the Father and he intercedes on your behalf. God, the Son, intercedes to God the Father, something no other priest, hear us in our modern context, no other man will do this for you. Your grandma's faith can't do this for you. No religion, no habit, no duty, nothing will get this for you. It's only Jesus. The truth holds. What discipline that you put in your life will go to God for you? None. What hobby, what person, what pursuit, what prize will go to God and plead and intercede for you? What amount of money will bring intercession for you? What hobby, what gadget, what house, what retirement account, what job promotion, what vacation, what education degree, what thing is going to get intercession for you in your greatest point of need? Nothing will. Nothing will. What lives to make intercession for you? And the answer that rings through the text is only Jesus. Nothing else will do this.
I get somewhat irate. By somewhat, I mean really irate. Because upon every tragedy, we get this thing that happens, right? Some news person or social media post or influencer, just somebody with, with the lens of the culture, they'll say these words. My prayer is for you. My prayer is for you. Knowing full well that the lion's share of them will never go to God and pray for you. And in that, I get irate because I want to ask them. That, 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 that part of me wants to go, what did you pray? Tell me what you said. What were your words? How did you pray? How long did you pray? Did you mean it? Tell me what you said. I think it takes a special type of monster to do that. To capitalize on tragedy and someone's weakness to try and make themselves look good or politically correct by saying to that person or for that person, I will go to God for you in your time of tragedy and then not go. What is the author saying? Jesus will never do that. Jesus, look at the text, he lives to, loves to, desires to go to God for you. For the heart that gets just kind of caught up and going like, maybe Jesus saved me, but he sure doesn't like me. It's not what the text says. He's going to the Father for you. As you draw near to God through the work of Jesus, he loves to intercede. What does this mean in the practical sense in our real lives? Well, in the incident where Peter denied Jesus three times, before it occurred, Jesus said to Peter these words. I don't have a slide for this, so just listen. In Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. This is what the enemy is trying to do. He wants to take you and crush you and destroy you. Jesus says in verse 32, but I have prayed for you. Not metaphorical, not the newscaster who doesn't mean it, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again that you would strengthen your brothers. What we hear in Hebrews 7.25 is that Jesus continues to fulfill the same role in same ministry that he did for Peter for you and me. He always lives to pray for us and intercede on our behalf so that we will be supplied with strength and the endurance to deal with temptation of the enemy in the world. And just as important, he's interceding to the Father so that we would even be given the conviction to be able to repent when our heart goes astray. He's interceding for us for that. Christ didn't go to the cross, rise again just to forget about you. I think we think that, right? He's just kind of like sitting back waiting to see what I screw up next. That's not what the text says. He's going to the Father, interceding for strength, for your faith to grow. He's going to the Father on your behalf. This is how we can be confident that our faith will hold until the end because Jesus is up there at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. This is how we can be confident that God won't say, forget those fools, I can't stand them because Jesus is continuing to say, we paid for them, they're ours. Christ lives to intercede for strength and faith for you. 
so that you would be built up. And Christ lives to intercede so that we can continually draw near to the Father. Even when we are tired or we are worn out, even in the moments that we get tripped up by sin, Christ is interceding to the Father so that those at the, those at the uttermost might be able to draw near. What's that word? So the most lost, busted up, weak, fall-on-your-face Christian can draw near. Jesus is interceding for that. That message is no one's too far gone. No one's screwed up too bad. There's moments you can't pray for yourself and you you loathe the actions you have. Why do I do what what I don't want to do? Why do I always fall for this? Why do I feel so weak? Why can't I open my Bible? Why why, Why can't I do this? When you feel the most lost, Jesus then too is interceding on your behalf so that you can never be too far gone. Nobody's too messy. Nobody's too hopeless. Nobody's too asleep to draw near. Through Christ and because of Christ, we can. So the call to everyone through this text is the exact same. Draw near today to God, child of God, through Jesus. Be encouraged that God is for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Remember the book of Romans. It's to see whether you think you are killing it in your faith or getting crushed that today you can draw near to God. Jesus is praying that you would. I wish that, that could be downloaded into our soul. Jesus is praying that today you would and could draw near to God right now. And the Holy Spirit is inviting you to it right now. There's something no other priest can do. No person, no pursuit. Only the worthy Lamb of God is making intercession for you now. Only the worthy Prince of Peace is praying so that you find strength. And the King of Righteousness is praying so that you can draw near. And I'll lay my cards out on the table before you. We've been praying and presenting in front of you the desire to become a people of prayer together. This is our goal for this. This is what we're pushing at. We're working it into our service. We're talking about it. And what I want you to hear is we're not angling in to be people who just petition God for more things. That's not it. We don't just want more of his stuff. We want more of him. We want to be those who draw near. The, the hope is that there would be this expectation, hunger, excitement, and awe. Guys, what's happened when we hear words like Jesus has made a path for you to draw near and you go, okay, neat. The Son has made a way for the presence of the Father to be real for you and for you to find freedom and joy there. The presence of God is open. 
because of the work of God the Son. We need to run at that and not go cool. I paid attention uh, to the news, and, and I'm wondering if you have as well about the revival in Kentucky. My prayer over and over, bring it here, Lord. Don't pass us by. Let us draw near to you in a more tangible way. Let us be those who experience your presence and see that you are worthy. Worthy of our praise, our song, our life, our dedication, our repentance, our focus. None of that would be possible without Jesus, but all of it is possible with him, through him, the better high priest. The question is really this for us. What are you going to do with that information? Will you draw near? Will you worship in today like the presence of God is available to you? Will you sing three songs and take the cup so you can just get out of here? What will you do? Then during the the week hearing that the presence of God and drawing near is available to you, what will you do? Cool? Will you run after it? There's this beautiful thing that happens around Lent where we can begin to fight and rage against our flesh so that our spirit can be built up. The hope is that we will do that. That we will draw near to the Lord, not chase lesser things. The door is open. The choice is really yours. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Father. And they're not nearly as far away from you as you think. There's a million things that you can run at over the next couple weeks. And the friendliest, most shepherding way I could tell you, none of those are anything compared to Jesus. We'll take communion today. Man, you guys can come back up. And as we do, we're remembering that the atonement for our sin, the path to draw near, the intercession that comes, all of that's only made possible by the work of Jesus. Without of that, none of it's a reality. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At any point, you'll be able to come up and take uh, communion. We're going to, in this last bit, kind of do the same rhythm that we've been doing. We'll play a song and have some gap for prayer. If these words like draw near or foreign to you, what are we talking about? The presence of God and the worthiness of God is available to draw near toward tangibly. For some of you to do that, it may be 
for the first time, you lift your hands in worship, either in this of, hey, I receive from you the presence that I've been avoiding, or hands in submission and surrender that go like this. Any of that can work. It can be you declaring, worthy are you, Father. You declaring his name to him. What do we do all during the week? Worthy is this, worthy is that, worthy is this, worthy is that, my attention and my time. In worship, if you want to draw near, you begin to declare to him, you are worthy. Let me see you more. Come, draw near to me, O Father. For some of us, as as these moments of drawing near come, if you decide, hey, I want to do that, but I don't know how, some of the things that we need to do as well is repent. We cannot get so reformed that we don't understand repentance. Here's the reality. You and I chase lesser things all the time. And so some moments, if we want to begin drawing near as well, we need to say, Father, I lay this down. I'm sorry for chasing lesser things. Come, draw near to me. Let me run towards you and have you draw near towards me. Father, may your presence come. May we experience it. May we walk in it, Lord. May we see that you are better than everything else. I pray that our hearts would grow in hunger and anticipation, that we would not be satisfied by what is satisfied for us for the last couple of years. Would you stand and pray with me?